0: You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in a minute, but there is something that I've, I've kind of recently discovered, and that is that not all, but much of the Spirit's work in our life will be expressed in fruit, founding Galatians 5 that greatly impacts the emotional quality of a person's life joy peace gentleness kindness temperance self control and i think that's a part of the life that's that's a part of our life that's kind of often often neglected and beyond the saving of the soul is probably our greatest our greatest area of need that's the need that Jesus meets for us and I learned that one of the keys to improving the emotional quality of a person's life is to arrest entitlement gratitude is the antidote to entitlement. I think we all wrestle with entitlement a little bit. Lord, this should be happening for me. This should should have happened for me by now. That's a joy robber. And so we can choose to focus on the things that God hasn't done, but we we can make a commitment to be grateful for the things God has done and we'll be healthier and happier and so as I prepare to pray today I want to encourage you just to begin to reflect on God's goodness to you and even if you aren't a person of faith yet what you may call luck or coincidence or Good fortune is something we would call common grace. It's still God. It's it's God looking out for us even when we didn't look to Him. And grace is still grace, even if you don't call it that. God's faithful. He's consistent. And God is good. Father, we come today with hearts filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, reflecting on your goodness to us. Grateful for who you are and what you've done. You've blessed us all week. We pause in this moment and with our gratitude, we bless you back. We speak well of you. We thank you. And I pray for those that are here that came with cares and burdens. Your word instructs us to cast our cares on you for you care for us. And I pray as a result of our time together, people will leave lighter. You said you'd give us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You said, those that sow in tears will reap in joy. God, may it be so for those of us who are in this room. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for this church and thank you for this day. And We thank you for these things, act your blessing on it in Jesus name, amen. amen. Clap your hands everybody one more time. You can be seated. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad to be at this church, a church that has inspired um, the journey of my wife and I and Change Church, and so grateful to be at this service. I heard about this service. I heard this, the 11 o'clock service. I heard this, this church church at this service. So incredibly honored to be here and much love and respect to Pastor Philip and Holly and just all God is doing and going to do in this great church. Amen? Amen. Okay, so I'm about to do something. I may get in trouble, but I've got the mic. And so um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to teach something different at this service than I did at the last one. Ouch, I'm kind of breaking rules, I'm sorry. It's too late now, huh? Yeah, I think I'll I'll go back to the other thing at the other service, but this is the 11 o'clock service. i want to give you something different and I wanna stay engaged. Matthew chapter nine, verses 27 through 30. I read from the New International Version of the scriptures, Matthew chapter nine, verses 27 through 30 the worship team here is really good. You know what I mean? They are really good. It's great It's great when people are sincere, but it's, it's good also when they're skilled. You know what I mean? In church, for those of so you who may, may not be familiar with coded church colloquialisms, when, when people say things like, bless their heart, that means it wasn't good. The worship team, bless their heart, that means was it good? <laughs> they were they were great. They were really great. I enjoyed them. Okay. I turned 40 two weeks ago, so I just Yeah. I just I, I just say stuff now. I didn't say when I was thirty. I guess you get older. You like, yeah, I don't know. Matthew chapter <laughs> Matthew chapter nine, verse twenty-seven says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out. Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And I want us to lean in to verse 30. It contains the clause of concern. And it says, And their sight was, listen to the word the writer uses, Restored. I want to give a subject to this scripture, and I want to talk from this subject in our time together. I need it back. I need it back. I was been recently wrestling with this concept of affectionately entitled a theology of achievement. And this concept rests on the revelation that God wants us to not only steward our time and our treasure, but that God also wants us to steward our talent. It is, in other words, it's God's intention that we make full use of, this is what everyone has, gifts, talents, and acquired skill that he is graciously given to each and every one of us. Not to make full use of what God has given us is to say to God, you should have taken some of what you gave me and given it to someone else who would have done more with it. I'm arguing that the graveyard is not just filled with tombs. I'm arguing that the graveyard is filled with unfulfilled potential. And wherever there is unfulfilled potential, there is unrealized purpose. Because God gives a person potential so that they can use that potential to carry out their purpose. God intends for us to waste nothing. God is a good steward. He refuses to waste anything. He does not waste your tears. He does not waste your mistakes. He does not waste your trials. He does not waste your tragedy. And it is his intention that we not waste anything either, including our potential. You see, purpose is the reason for the creation or the existence of a thing. And purpose is always an answer to a problem. When someone creates something, they're answering a problem. When someone created lights, they're answering a darkness problem. When they create medicine, they're answering a sickness problem. When they created means of transportation, they're answering a transportation problem. Am I making sense? And when God created you, you are not a problem. You were created to solve problems. And when our potential is not reached, our purpose is not fulfilled, and when our purpose is not fulfilled there are problems on the earth that we leave the next generation to solve. And those that come behind us have to fight Goliath. we were supposed to slay. Not attempting to become your best self robs the world of your external contributions, but it also will rob you of internal fulfillment. Maslow says, if you plan on being anything less than you are capable of being, you can plan on being unhappy all the days of your life. And as I've been wrestling with this concept, I asked myself, what separates those who are fully fruitful from those that aren't besides God's grace? And as I explored this through the lens of some biblical characters, there was one word that consistently comes to my mind. And that word is courage. Courage. The greatest exploits aren't done by the most gifted, but by the most courageous. As a matter of fact, when Joshua, who was Moses' successor, assumed leadership responsibility over Israel, God didn't tell Joshua, as he assimilated him into this role, to be gifted because he already was. He didn't tell him to be creative because he already was. He didn't tell him to be anointed because he already was. He didn't tell him to be equipped. Because he already was. Because whoever God appoints, he's already equipped. Whoever he employs, he already has empowered. You know what he tells him? He tells him be strong and be courageous. In other words, I have already placed on the inside of you everything that you need to carry out this role that I am calling you to. But the enemy can inhibit you from your effectiveness by causing you not to be courageous enough to use what I have put on the inside of you. Courage. David was not the greatest warrior but he was the most courageous and family the greatest expression of courage is seen on the cross courage is the ultimate expression of faith and jesus's death on the cross wasn't just an expression of his love for us but it was also an expression of his faith in the father Therefore, the cross teaches us the importance of not just having faith in Jesus, but if we're going to be our best self, we must have faith like Jesus. Isn't it interesting? We're always encouraged to emulate Different character traits of Jesus. Be humble like Jesus. Be meek like Jesus. Have love like Jesus. Have focus like Jesus. But rarely do we hear have faith like Jesus. And Jesus' willingness to go to the cross was the ultimate expression of faith. Courage looks like faith. Courage looks like faith. Faith is courage and courage is faith. And Jesus is the ultimate embodiment and example of faith. He, He models it for us and all throughout scripture we see him being uniquely moved by it. Pastor Philip mentioned earlier a a narrative found in Mark chapter five, this woman who has this issue of blood for 12 years and for 12 years she, she examines different avenues to try to get help and nothing could help her. And the Bible says one day she heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and Jesus had this huge crowd following him but she said to herself if I could just touch the hem of his garment I shall be made whole so she didn't even say I need to touch him she said I just need to touch what's touching him and if I can touch what's touching him I will be made whole this is why church is important this is why you being here today is important because sometimes it feels hard to get to him but when you can't get to him you just need to get to somebody that's touching him come on family That when your faith is low, somebody else's might be high. And when you're running on empty, somebody else might be running on full. And the Bible says this. It says she pressed her way through the crowd and she touched his garment. And Jesus stopped and he asked the question. And the question was, who touched me? And the disciples say, Jesus, you've got all of these people touching you. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean who touched me? Jesus said, no, I felt virtue go out of me. In other words, faith feels different. Everybody was doing the same thing, but when she did it with faith, she got a completely different result because faith feels different. And Jesus calls that woman to himself, and in Mark 5, verse 34, he says this to her, your faith has healed you. See another example in Mark chapter 10 with this man named Bartimaeus who was blind, and Jesus heals his blindness and and says to him, your faith has healed you. And I think the best example of this in action is seen here in Matthew chapter 9. We we read this. The Bible says that there are two blind men who are following Jesus. I've got a problem with that already. <laughs> we read it together. <laughs> it says there are two blind men Following Jesus. Okay, let me see if y'all are as confused as I am. It says there are two blind men following Jesus. If you're blind, how are you following Jesus? It's a powerful principle, I think, that speaks to those of us who want to maximize our potential, to want to be our best self. It means that they refuse to allow what wasn't working to stop them from using what was working. In other words, they couldn't see but they could hear their eyes didn't work but their ears did their eyes didn't work but their legs did and if a person is going to be an achiever they're going to have to refuse to be denied based on what is not working and learn how to win with what is working because all of us have something that we could point to that can be an excuse for us not becoming our best self. Not, I don't have the right support. I don't have the right background. I don't have the right pedigree. But they refuse to allow their blindness to block them from their blessing. Yes. Notice what they say. They say they're following Jesus. And the text says that they say, have mercy on us son of David the fact that they say have mercy on us son of David says to me that even though they're blind they can see better than some people with sight so when they say son of David they aren't literally saying that Jesus is David's son the David who defeated Goliath they aren't saying that Jesus is David's son they understood that Jesus, the promised Messiah, was to come from the lineage of David. So when they said, have mercy on uh, on us, son of David, they were saying to him, even though we can't see you, we see you. They were saying that we see that you are the one who was and is and is to come. They saw him correctly. And here's, here's, here's the principle for us. The God we see is the God we get. The God we see is the God we get. Can I give an example? There, there's an exchange that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 13 he goes to his hometown he goes to Nazareth he goes into the synagogue he does some teaching and as he's doing some teaching people are there saying things like isn't this the carpenter's son? isn't this Mary's baby? cause see it's sometimes the people who know you best know you the least they were so familiar with who he had been they could not fully embrace who he had become does that make sense because some people can't see you beyond the state you were in when they met you And Jesus is like, yes, the last time you saw me, I was just a carpenter's son. But when I turned 30 years old, the Holy Spirit descended on me in the form of a dove and I evolved into someone who would spend the next three years of his life changing the world. This is interesting now. And this is this is so sad because the Bible says this. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It didn't say he didn't do many miracles there because he couldn't do miracles. It didn't say he didn't do many miracles there because he didn't want to do miracles. It says he didn't do many miracles there because they didn't believe that he could do miracles. You see, the God you see is the God you get. It didn't say he didn't do any Miracles there. It said he didn't do many. So that means a few got what was available for many because some people saw the carpenter, other people saw the Christ. If you see the carpenter, you get your house fixed. If you see the Christ, you get your life fixed. And it is possible for people to settle for a dormant ordinary normal relationship with God and project that on God and there is nothing about God that is normal God wants to blow you up from the floor up he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think your eyes haven't seen your ears haven't heard your heart has not conceived what God has in store for those that love him but the God you see is the God you get. And there are people serving the same God having completely different experiences with him because some only see a God that can get them to heaven and others see a God that wants to bring some heaven to earth. Am I making sense so far? So they follow Jesus and they say, have mercy on us. And Jesus asks them a question. I think it's a really powerful question. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Now to me, it's an interesting question because if I'm blind and I'm following you, <laughs> I'm not just following anybody. I'm, I, I believe you could do something. But I wonder if one of the reasons he asks the question is this, is to kind of teach us something, is that our motives for following him can be different. And I don't, I don't think desperation is bad, but I do think there are times where there's a difference between desperation and faith. Faith is committed to Jesus. Desperation is committed to an outcome. So whenever I'm committed to an outcome, that means I will go with whatever I feel like will get me that outcome, even if it means abandoning Jesus. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? I think by asking this question, Jesus is teaching us the power of questions. He's teaching us the power of the right question. Do you believe I'm able to do this because the questions we ask determine the conclusions we come to. And so the questions we ask determine the conclusions we come to. The questions we ask determine the conclusions we come to. He's teaching us to ask the right questions. I want to give you an example. There's a lady in the Old Testament named Sarah. Now, now, and she's an old age. She wants to have a baby. She's past childbearing age. God wants to give her a baby. And she's struggling be- to believe she can have one. So the way God, this is so interesting to me, helps her handle her doubt is not by having her to stop asking questions. The way God helps her handle her doubt is by teaching her the right questions to ask. What if I told you that sometimes to get over doubt, you don't avoid questions, you just avoid the wrong ones? This is what he said to Sarah. She's struggling regarding whether or not <laughs> she's gonna be able to have a baby, and he asked her this question Is anything too hard for God? See, if you ask, can someone in their 90s have a baby, that question is going to bring you to one conclusion. But if you ask, is there anything too hard for God, that question is going to bring you to another conclusion. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So the question isn't, can you do it? The question is, is there anything too hard for God? The question isn't, is it too late for you? The question is, is there anything too hard for God? The question isn't, can you recover from this? The question is, is there anything too hard for God? You know, our pastor in our main campus is right outside of Princeton, New Jersey. It's an incredible area. Um, Um... highly cerebral, as you would imagine, and intellectual. And so we have probably just like in an area like this, we have a number of different people who are at different places on their faith journey. And so for some reason, we have a lot of people, atheistic, most for the most part, agnostics, right? And so when when I lift up stories of the Bible like this, you know, they give me that Darius. Yeah, you won't believe a woman in her nineties had a baby. And so for me, as I'm walking them on the faith, I'm like, Hey, I, you don't have to believe that yet. That's fine. I want you to believe in Jesus. That's, Hey, that's, that's not a deal. That doesn't shake my tree. If you don't believe that, uh, I want you to get, I don't want the details of the story to cause you to miss the message of the story. Right? I say, but for me, I believe it. I say, but, you may not be there yet, but I believe it. I believe it's an actual historical event. I said, how can you believe that? I say, well, I can believe it because if someone can create the sun, I just figured that that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the question is: Can a woman have a 90s? It's can the one that ordered the universe in a way where there is the exact amount of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the atmosphere. The the one who ordered the world in a way where the sun is far enough away from the earth that we're not consumed, but close enough that we get its warmth. Someone who thought so intentionally about me that he took a casing in the form of a skull and put it over the most significant and vulnerable part of my body, which is my brain. Someone intelligent did that. Someone strategic did that. And so, if that that person can do that, I figure somehow, I don't know, somehow he he, he, he did that. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. This is what I want you to see as I wrap up here. I went through all of that to get to this. <laughs> Bible says he touched their eyes and said to them, according to your faith be it unto you and that sight was restored so I kept looking at this, this word restored and I wanted to know why the translator chose to use that word because in Mark 5 with the woman with the issue of blood they didn't use that word and in Mark 10 with blind Bartimaeus they didn't use that word And so I wanted to see or think through why they chose to use the word restore. And in the original language that the New Testament was written in, it is a completely different word that they use from the words in Mark 5 and Mark 10. Which says to me, it's possible, likely, I feel like it's logical that we can conclude that the writer used the word restored because at one point they could see. And something happened that took their sight. And we could speculate sometimes it's illness that takes people's sight. But more often than that, it's injury. And and everybody has two set of eyes. You got the eyes in your head, you got the eyes in your heart. And sometimes we hadn't lost sight in these eyes, but we've lost sight in these eyes. Because the eyes in your head give you sight, but the eyes in your heart give you vision. to see what God sees for you. You can't see, you can't look through these eyes. You got to look through these eyes. And all over this room, there are people who are blind. to Los Angeles from a different part of the country and you, you saw something. You, you believed. Something happened. And it took your sight. And now you don't even believe the extraordinary is possible for you. You place the period where God wants to put a comma. confused being delayed with being denied just took your sight maybe you got married and you expect it. you envisioned things going a certain way you thought or you said to death do you part you meant it but maybe something happened and it sent your life in a completely different direction If I'm ever going to wake up again and not cry. Or maybe you just had plans for your life you invested in and you sold time in and you, you thought things were going to go a certain way. And then all of a sudden your world got turned upside down and you're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? so full of faith and now you feel like a failure. It's taking your sight Chinese, old Chinese theologian I used to read said you you get to a point where you're able to use the words of scripture to describe your own journey. I'm not just talking about these two men in this text. I'm I'm talking about me. I know what it's like. But see, see, sometimes you don't know something is gone until you reach for it and it's not there. Did you hear what I just said? The Bible says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think we look at that as three different ways of saying the same thing, instead of really taking it for face value. Sometimes the enemy doesn't destroy, he steals. And so we go through some seasons and circumstances and we survive them, but the enemy didn't send that season and circumstance to destroy us. Maybe he sent it to rob us. Maybe you came out, but you left something in it. You need to go back and get back. He can steal your optimism, steal your joy. You come blind. And today, I want to tell you, I've been there I was there and I didn't know I was there till a couple years ago we got into this major major fight with this township this land we had purchased and we were gonna build a property and the people were believing and we were confessing and praying and giving and purchased it and we just ran into so much opposition here there everywhere and I was waiting on God to give us victory And victory did not come. And because I had to survive, I didn't even know I was wounded from that fight. I didn't even know they had taken something from me. I didn't even know I had begun to theologize my small dreaming now. I'm done. Oh gosh, I'm over my time. I'm sorry. Until, until one day, I was talking to my pastor on the phone, and he prayed. He was pre- prayed for me, and uh, we were praying about something—a move I was getting ready to make. And when he got done praying, I was quiet. He said, "Darius, what's what's wrong?" I said, "I would have never prayed that for myself." He said, "What do you mean?" I said just hit me. I would have never asked God to do something that big for me because my disappointment had made me pray protective prayers. I was praying safe, believing safe because I did not want to be disappointed again. God would have it not too long after that I was scheduled to go to New Zealand to speak and and one of the other conference speakers was someone from Latin America who had an incredibly he had had something called the spiritual gift of faith and we just had this incredible moment where it's just like maybe you feeling it now where it was like he was speaking and I'm sitting there I'm like why are you in my business get out of my business like it was me and him in that room. And he prayed a prayer. I want to pray for you. Because the season, that season I was in, I couldn't go in that season blind. I had to have it back. And I needed God to give it to me. And Jesus prayed over these men and their sight was restored and I believe the Jesus that did it for them wants to do it for you I believe in therapy I have a therapist I do but there are some things you don't have five years to figure out to fix there are some things we need God to expedite need it back. And I believe he can do that because he did it for me. So, Father, I pray for those who have gone through some kind of injury, some life circumstance that's taken their sight. They don't even believe that your best is possible for them anymore. I pray now in Jesus' name that you restore their sight. They will no longer pray protective, safe prayers. But you're an incredible God. May they believe you to do incredible things. And may they step into the best season of their entire life in Jesus' name.